0: Well, take your Bibles, let's get them open to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to look at a couple of um, verses for a few moments that are going to, again, just help us continue on here with this idea of what do we need to be focusing on as we come to this kind of new point in the history of our church, and I want to start by telling you a little story, somebody I, I met with really just in the last couple of weeks, we met so many new people over the last um, couple of weeks, especially in the last week, we had the open houses here and people from the community who heard about it in the papers or whatever they were coming in and um, seeing the building and just meeting so many new people. And I met with someone who I would say is uh, interested in faith, in the faith, um, maybe religious in some way. Uh, but not quite yet there in terms of a relationship uh, with Christ. And she said to me in the course of our uh, conversation, uh, we chatted for maybe 20, 25 minutes, and she, she said to me, I, I just need you to know that I'm a little uncomfortable with how freely you talk about Jesus. <laughs> she said, it's just a little unnerving to me. And, um, and I, I get that from her perspective. I, I get that. We're, we're so open about it. And we talk about him so much, and that can really put some people kind of like back on their heels a little bit. And I want to tell you, first of all, if you're a guest here today, and this isn't really your cup of tea, someone invited you here, and this is kind of all new to you, that it's absolutely okay to come with your reservations, to come and feel a bit uncomfortable at first. We want you here to hear all of this. But I would hope you would also, understanding that you've kind of come into our house today, that you would extend to us the courtesy of talking about him as much as we possibly can. Because he's our everything. He's our everything. First of all, we don't even have physical life apart from him. And, and those of us who, who have been saved by him and had our sins forgiven, we have spiritual life because of him. We have eternal life because of him. And with all that we are and everything that we do as individuals and as a church, it is our intent, as our pillar says, to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's our whole thing. And, and even those, that's kind of a word to our guests, but even those of us who are believers who have been walking with him for like a long time, for years and years, need this constant reminder that Jesus is at the center. Because it's so easy for us as human beings, all of us in the room, no one exempt from this, not elders, not pastors, not small group coaches, not small group leaders, not the most veteran of believers, none of us gets a pass on this. It's so easy for us to become self-focused, to turn inward, to think about ourselves and to be kind of selfish in a way. And to be so wrapped up in our own lives that we forget that Jesus is supposed to be at the center of all things. And so we need to be reminded constantly about all of this and what we have seen God do in the building of this church. And when I say that, I mean the 16-year process of building his church, the people. Okay? When I say building the church, I mean us. And then, only then, in the provision of this facility, it's so important that at this point we remind ourselves again. We have to have our eyes on Jesus. Our eyes must be fixed on him. It's all about him. And in fact, that phrase comes out of Hebrews uh, 12 2. The preacher here, Hebrews is a sermon. The preacher says that we are to, and I'm using the NIV language here because I like it better. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's the only way to both please God Would we all admit that that's super important? Pleasing God? Pleasing God's important? Pleasing God's important. Okay, that's the only way. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The only way to please God and, listen, the only way to to be personally fulfilled in life. That means I know who I am. I'm not struggling with my identity. It means I know what my purpose in life and on this earth is. And it means that I know categorically, no matter what happens to me, I'm loved. And I don't need to go searching for that love. In all the wrong places. That's what fixing my eyes on Jesus does. And so that's what we're gonna look at here in these two verses and uh, let me read them for us and then we'll begin working through it really phrase by phrase. Hebrews 12, one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right, this is what we're going to go after, to live a life that is both God-pleasing and personally fulfilling. I must fix my eyes on Jesus, as so many others have, in the past. Now notice verse 1, that first phrase, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Who are these people that are watching us? Now the, the image that's being used throughout this passage is that of a a race, of course. And so you can imagine that these witnesses are spectators in the grandstands as the race is being run. Or if it's a road race, they're the people who are lining the roadway as you're running the race. That's who the witnesses are. And um, if you look at the context of Hebrews 12 and the chapter that came just before it, chapter 11 you'll know that these witnesses that the preacher is speaking of are actually those Old Testament believers who faithfully lived their life for God, who had their eyes fixed on him, whose purpose was singular, and who glorified God through their life. You look at them, if you go back, and beginning around uh, verse 4, you have um, people like Abel and Enoch in uh, verse 4. Uh, 5, then Noah in verse 7, and in verse 8 we begin hearing about Abraham, who's a person of faith. His wife Sarah, verse 11. Verse 17, more about Abraham, and then verse 20, Isaac. 21, Jacob. 22, Joseph. 23, Moses. Verse 29 says, By faith the people. Verse 31, it's about Rahab. And then Verse 32 tells us of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. All kinds of people who lived their life faithfully and who now stand as the witnesses and the spectators and are there in the grandstand cheering us on as we run our race, as we live our life with them as our example. And what was it about them that was so special? Well, back to verse 1 of chapter 11, the chapter before, we get this definition of faith. These men and women had an assurance of things hoped for. I know I'm going to get this, but I don't have it yet. I'm just hoping for it. That's faith. They had a conviction the verse says, of things not seen. I can't see this, but I'm absolutely sure that it's true, that it exists, that God is real, that his name is Jesus. That's what faith is about and that's what they showed us. And they were commended, verse 39 says, commended through their faith. They fixed their eyes Now for them, they were Old Testament believers, so Jesus hadn't come yet. They fixed their eyes on the promise of the Messiah, Jesus himself being the Messiah or the Savior of the world, the very same thing that we are being asked to do here. And so to live a life that's God-pleasing and personally fulfilling, I must fix my eyes on Jesus as so many others have in the past, and I need to do that, notice, by removing all obstacles to faith first one continues i need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely now you might think that these examples from chapter 11 uh, that we just looked at really briefly you might think well they had they were, they were just perfect They they laid aside all of their weights. They, They laid aside all of their sin. They were pristine and perfect people. And so I can't really measure up to that. And if you have that in your mind, it just shows that maybe you don't know the Old Testament stories as well as you might need to because that list includes a prostitute, a murderer, a liar, a cheater. I mean, this is a... Uh, 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 this is a, a, a list of significantly broken people. This isn't a list of pristine people. This is a list of us. You know, this, this, is, this is a group of, of people who are a motley crew who are commended for their faith. Not a group of perfect people. You might remember this phrase that we used several months ago, maybe a year or so ago. We just declared ourselves to be a mob of misfits. Remember that? We're a mob of misfits. That's what chapter 11 is. That's who the people of God are. It's not a place for perfect people. It's a place for broken people who are working some things out, listen, by by faith. We're working to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely not having arrived there yet. And so two obstacles are really um, identified there. Two things that, um, if I could put it this way, distract us. Because if we're talking about fixing our eyes on Jesus, then the only thing that's going to keep us from doing that are distractions. I, I saw this uh, this week online that imagine um, you're traveling at 90 kilometers an hour. We want to talk about distractions now. You're traveling at 90 kilometers an hour. That's the speed limit on... Highway 11 just north of the city. Just pretend that that's actually the speed that people go on Highway 11 (laughs) north of the city. That is the posted speed limit. You're traveling at 90 kilometers an hour. And you look down at your phone to check a text. You look down for just five seconds. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you text and drive. I will not ask that question. But some of you do. And just listen to this. If you look down at your phone for just five seconds at 90 kilometers an hour, it is as if you have traveled the length of a football field blindfolded. Now think about all the bad things that can happen in that period of time. You're so distracted by this that you're no longer focusing on the thing you're supposed to focus on. And so what happens? You see it sometimes when you're driving along or maybe you've done it. All of a sudden now you're drifting and you look and you're a third of the way into the other lane. Or, or you've drifted off to the right and now you're, you're feeling the gravel or the rumble strips that are on the side of the highway. Worst case scenario, you run into a guardrail, or the car that's in the other lane. Or if you're on a city street, you might run somebody over and it was the distraction that caused that because you didn't fix your eyes on the thing that you were supposed to be looking at. That's what we're talking about here, the things that get our eyes off of Jesus. There's also a public service announcement in there about texting and driving, okay? So hear that part of it, and then hear the important part of it concerning Jesus. Let's get these obstacles away from us. The first of them is this weight. There's weight and there's sin, now, the, the weight is not necessarily a bad thing. He doesn't identify it as a sin. In fact, it could be a good thing that we have in our life, but it's just distracting us, actually, from Jesus. It might keep us from greater devotion to him. And you, you think about the race analogy, again, that's being used throughout this passage. You look at a, a runner. I saw a runner uh, this morning on our way over here, and uh, I still don't understand why people do that. But anyway, she's running, and... <laughs> She's got, um, you know, because it's a little cooler this morning, she's got like a little bit, uh, like a hoodie on or something, and she's got a, um, she's got her iPhone with her strapped onto her arm, and I don't know if she had like some water on her or something. And so sometimes runners who are just running recreationally, again, I don't understand that, but they, they're, they're running around town with extra things on them. But if you look at, now, a track competition, you look at the Olympics, and you see that they're not carrying anything with them. And in fact... The image here, because the the preacher in Hebrews, he's writing in the first century, he's got the ancient Greek games in his mind, and in the ancient Greek, Greek games, of course, the runners ran naked, correct. Now, all the people who weren't listening to the sermon, all of a sudden, their ears have picked up a little bit. I get it. Did he just say naked? Yes, he said naked. They ran naked, okay, so that they had, listen, when the verse says, lay aside every weight, Okay, so the literal fulfillment is you run naked. Okay, now, would we agree, would we agree? <laughs> clothes are a good thing. Let's vote. <laughs> clothes are a great thing. Clothes are a great thing. They're a good thing. They're not a sinful thing. They're a good thing. And, and, and but, but when we're running, we want to make sure we're not hindered by any good thing that might keep us from being focused on Jesus in the way that we ought to be. And so I, I just thought about a couple of examples here. We want to run this race with endurance and um, not be distracted. And I, I thought about uh, hobbies. Hobbies are good things. Leisure activities are good things. What do you like to do? You know, I like to, I like to make things. I like to craft things. I'm a carpenter. I, I cross stitch. I, I go fishing. I, you know, whatever it is, whatever your hobby is. It can be a good thing, but, but would you agree with me that at some point a hobby or a leisure activity can reach a tipping point and all of a sudden I'm putting more money into that than I ever understood and more time into that and now it's starting to distract me from my family and it's taking me away from a good things that I could be doing for the Lord and my relationships are suffering because any good thing that God gives us can become an idol in our lives and take us away from it can become a distraction. Or relationship, relationships are great things. God wants us in a relationship together. If you take like the number one best relationship that God could possibly give us in marriage, the, the relationship between a husband and wife, marriage ordained by God, uh, sanctified by him, an institution that he created. But in marriage, we can make ourselves, our marriage, our spouse so much a focus of our attention, that we can actually idolize that and it becomes a distraction from serving the Lord. I think you get the idea with all of that. Any good thing can become a weight that takes us from Jesus. The second obstacle here, you see it now, is the sin, the sin issue. And uh, maybe, um, maybe you're thinking, um, I came to a building de- dedication, Todd, and I think it's a bad plan. Uh, with so many guests here, to talk about sin, you know, at the grand opening. I don't know what you're doing. Why are you talking about sin? Bad idea. Uh, but see, the problem um, for me is, and for our church, is that we don't skip any of the parts of the Bible we don't like. You know what I'm saying? Can't skip it. We need to look at the whole counsel of God. And, and when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, this is what you see. I fix my eyes on Jesus, and I see His holiness. It's the first thing you see. And we have examples of it in the scripture. And what happens at the moment that you see the holiness of God in all of its fullness, then you realize in that moment how far off the mark you really are. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets before the Lord. He's brought into the throne room of God. He's going to have some visions that he's going to deliver. Prophetic words that he's going to bring to the people. So he's brought into the throne room of God. And the moment that he enters in there, he falls flat down and he goes, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone, one translation says. Because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips and my eyes this is what we're going after right fixing our eyes on Jesus and Isaiah says my eyes have seen the Lord he saw his holiness and so we have to talk about this if we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus we're going to see how holy he is and how needy we are because of our sin. And listen, the fixing our eyes on Jesus not only exposes the sin, but listen, it also gives us the path of hope because Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, that's the antidote to the sin problem. And so we need to get our eyes on him because in him we find grace and we find forgiveness. And then we do all of this, ready for the next part, while persevering, Through all circumstances. Now, this is what trips up a lot of people when it comes uh, to faith uh, because we know that Jesus solves our eternal problem. He solves the problem of our sin and He gives us the promise of heaven with Him. We know our sins are forgiven by His grace. But then we're still faced with living down here in this sin-sickened world. Still facing temptation, still falling from time to time, still not getting it right a lot of the time, and, and living in a world that continues to throw awful things at us. And, and we can fall into this temptation of thinking that somehow the Lord has cheated us. We gave our life to you, and now why is our why is, why is my life still... Such a train wreck in many ways. And Christians, I just need to say this Christians don't get a pass on the life is hard thing. Accepting Jesus Christ doesn't give us a pass on all of the difficulties that every single person on the planet faces. So notice what he says again, verse one, just continuing on here, let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. I mean, if life wasn't hard, we wouldn't even need this verse, would we? I mean, you wouldn't even be—you wouldn't need to hear that you need to persevere, that you need to endure, unless life was going to be hard. Now, again, he's—he's talking about the ancient Olympics, and he probably has in his mind as he's preaching this, the—the premier race is the marathon. uh, just over 26 miles or 42, just over 42 kilometers long. Uh, what I know about uh, racing and running, of course, I read. <laughs> and that's, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, that's a grueling race. That just seems like, it seems like a long way to run. Uh, to me, but I think about other races as well. I think about, um, you ever watch in the Olympics the steeplechase? It's the only time we ever see this race, right, on TV. The steeplechase. You know about this one? How many people uh, know about the steeplechase? Just raise your hand. So the steeplechase is 3,000 meters long, and um, at certain points, they, they run it around a track, and at certain points, they run them off the track, and they have this exceptionally large hurdle, not like the sprint hurdles, but a larger hurdle that actually has a little platform on the top of it, and on the other side of the hurdle, there's a pin- Filled with water. You know this? You know this race? And so they, it's not just enough that we're gonna make you run around a track for 3,000 meters. That seems like a long way. And it's not, it's not enough we're gonna get you to do that. We're gonna get you go off the track sometimes and go over this hurdle that you can't actually hurdle. You need to jump on top of and down. And then once you're off that, you're gonna be in water. And, and you gotta come out of that. And it's, it's grueling. It's grueling. And sometimes what happens is now you've got these hurdles you gotta get over, and sometimes the guy's Trip over the hurdles and then they fall flat down into the water, face down. And if they have fellow competitors who are like, Tell me this isn't your life sometimes, they're running and they get on top of the hurdle and they jump down on top of your head. And you feel like, I got over the hurdle, hooray for me, flat down in the water, this is awful, somebody's jumping on my head. Okay? Some of us, isn't that true? Like you don't go through just one hard thing. It's like one hard thing and then another hard thing and then another hard thing. And God, why is this happening to me? That's the steeplechase. So I kind of have that one in my mind. And then the triathlon, which I don't even understand the psyche of people who run this, okay? And, and the, the, the worst of the triathlons is the Ironman. And I, I wrote this down. This is absolutely pretty insane. They swim for 3.86 kilometers. Um, I won't even walk that far. (laughs) They ride a bike for 180 kilometers and uh, they uh, run a full marathon at the end of all of that. Uh, (laughs) I have no category for that. But here's the thing about all three, because that, to me, is more like life. That's like, oh, you swam a long distance? Was that hard for you? Okay, here's something else for you, dude. Now you need to ride a bike. And then it's like, oh, you're done riding the bike, and you went, like, the equivalent of to, you know, down to Windsor and back? That's great. Now I want you to run and keep running. And it, that's more like life, isn't it? The steeplechase more like life. It just keeps throwing things at you that you're not expecting. And, and, um... The thing about all of the people, whether they run a marathon or the steeplechase or the Ironman or any kind of triathlon, if you look at them in the finish line, not a single one of them is ever smiling. They are not. They are not. Even if they win, they are not smiling. Check this out. Life is hard. Life is hard. And, and the preacher is trying to get us to this place where we understand this. But we need to persevere. Through all of it. The race is going to take its toll on us. It is a test of endurance. The scriptures make that clear. And it is so for the Christian and those who do not believe. And your life will never be fulfilling to you. If we're talking about personal fulfillment, it will never be fulfilling to you. If every trial and every hardship and every setback that you go through is seen to be a negative in your life, if you're not looking for the thing that God is trying to do through it, if you have in your mind, God is out to get me, or God has dealt me a bad hand, if you have that in your mind, then you will not be enduring. You won't persevere. Through what God has for you, fulfillment, personal fulfillment comes when you fix your eyes on Jesus and recognize that what God chooses for you is best and where you are assured that he will love you through it. Fulfillment comes when you have faith to believe what Romans 8.28 says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. When you have that kind of faith, you will be persevering through every circumstance. And all the while, laser focused and fully embracing Jesus Christ for who he is. And that's what we want to look at finally here in verse 2. Fully embracing him, first of all, as my Savior. You see, there's the phrase we've been looking at that that keys this whole passage. We're looking to Jesus. We're fixing our eyes on him because he is the one and only savior of our life. Look at verse 2 continues. He is the founder, the founder of our faith. He created this faith for us. He made it possible for us to be saved his coming to earth in flesh, taking on human form and living among us and facing temptations in all of the ways that we face temptation, teaching us about the kingdom of God, then submitting himself to death, even death on the cross, taking the the sins of the entire world, your sin and my sin upon himself, dying on that cross, shedding his blood for us and resurrected on the third day by the power of the holy spirit he did all of that to defeat sin to defeat death to make an offer to us to be saved he founded our faith he's the founder of our faith and he's my savior he's also my lord Notice the second descriptor identifies him as the perfecter of our faith. That is to say, he's in control of everything and he will bring everything to completion. History will have no loose ends. God will make it perfect. The day is coming when our faith will be made sight because his plan is rolling out exactly as he has willed it. There is nothing happening in the world today that is catching God by surprise. Nothing. There's nothing you're reading in your Twitter feed. There's nothing that's in the news that has surprised God this week. North Korea does not bother God. He's not anxious about North Korea. He's not bothered by the storms that are ravaging it. These didn't catch him by surprise. Harvey, Irma, whoever they are, he knew them before the foundation of the world. God knows that Trump was elected and that he's president of the United States. He ordained it to be so. He knows that Putin is in Russia. He gets the whole geopolitical thing. There's nothing that's bothering God. And for those of us who trust Jesus Christ, there should be nothing in the news that's causing us anxiety. Because we trust him. Because he's Lord. And we need to trust him. Not just in the global sense of this. Not just have peace in the global sense of all of these things. But but with our entire lives and all the personal things that happen. He's Lord of our lives. He's in control of it all. There's nothing that's catching him by surprise. Fully embracing him as my Savior, my Lord, my Example, here's the example that he said for us, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus here is asking us to do what he did. He's asking us to fix our eyes on him because he fixed his eyes on the Father, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of pleasing his father, of fulfilling the mission that the father had given to him. So he's doing what what he asked us to do. We're gonna fix our eyes on him. He looked past the immediate. Crushing circumstances of the cross. He looked beyond the shame. He despised the shame that was put on him. He looked past the, the, the horror of having the Father turn his back on him when Jesus cried out from the cross with the weight of our sin upon him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He looked past all of that to pleasing the Father and doing his will. That's our example. Fix our eyes on Jesus. But a caution here that I feel like I I need to say anytime we hold up Jesus as the example. He is our example, but he is first in the passage and in our hearts. He is first Savior and Lord. Lord. He is not first example. In fact, he's example by virtue of him being Savior and Lord. Those have to come first for us. And I love what C.S. Lewis has said, and this is probably one of his most famous quotes. This comes from mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Don't fall into the error of thinking that following Jesus' teaching and example is a nice positive way to live. As if he's just another guru among many gurus. You have to come here knowing that you are a sinner with no ability within yourself to reach God. You need to come broken and throw yourself at Jesus' feet. You need to come and receive the grace, the free gift he offers of his own righteousness put on you. Not your righteousness, but his. You need to believe that God raised him from the dead and you need to confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And only then, once you have been saved by him, only then, should you model your life after his. Savior, Lord, example, and finally, Jesus is my God. The last part of verse two, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is a position of deity. And I make no defense here for the fact that Jesus is actually the problem with this church. Jesus is the problem. And by that, I mean that he's the dividing line. That the uniqueness of Jesus among all the small s saviors and small g gods is what causes people angst. It's what gets them bent out of shape. It's what causes someone to come to me and say, I'm not that comfortable with how often you talk about Jesus. In fact, Jesus is called in 1 Peter 2.8, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. He's the one people trip over. He's the one who causes people to be offended. And so make no mistake of all the things that people think about us. They need to know that we believe that Jesus Christ is God. And that you and I worship him as such. Well, that's it. Here's the whole statement that we've built here. To live a life that is both God-pleasing and personally fulfilling, I must fix my eyes on Jesus, as so many others have in the past, by removing all obstacles to faith while persevering through all circumstances and fully embracing Jesus as my Savior, my Lord, my example, and my God. Can you say amen to that? Amen.